He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful today. We're thankful that you have provided a salvation for us that is free, a salvation that was not free to you, but it cost your son, the second person of the Trinity, entering into human history to become sin for us as he hung on the cross to bear in his own body on the tree our sin, that he paid that sin penalty for us in untold suffering, misery that came upon him, the perfectly righteous, eternal person, second person of the Trinity, as he was identified with our sin and paid its penalty. Father, we're thankful for that. We're thankful for the rich life that we have in Christ. And as we've studied in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, the rich blessings that we have in Christ, that we have been appointed to a mission, to a task, to a a destiny in him, to serve him, to glorify you, that we have been redeemed, we have been forgiven, of our sins, we have a relationship with you that is eternal and constantly becomes deeper as we come to know you through a study of your word, coming to understand that we have a mark upon us. We have been sealed, a mark of identification and ownership, that we are yours for a destiny that includes an inheritance that is uh, to be revealed in the when we are face-to-face with you, and that inheritance has everything to do with how we will rule and reign with you in the future. Father, we thank you for all of these things, and we ask that as we study your word and come to be enriched by it under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that we will be strengthened in the inner man, and that we will have great confidence in your care and your love for us as you are our Ebenezer, who constantly rescues us from all danger, as the hymn says. And we thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and today we're going to look at verse 16. Verse 16 emphasizes gratitude, emphasizes the fact that we are to be grateful. It emphasizes Paul's prayer of gratitude, but this is a prayer of gratitude that is not only the expression 
of his gratitude to God for the Ephesian believers, but it is a each of these prayers that we have in Scripture are patterns for us. They give us uh, ideas and concepts. They relate to what is important, what should be the priorities in our prayer life, what we should pray for, the kinds of things that we pray for. So often what we focus on in terms of our prayers or that which immediately concerns us, needs related to those near and dear to us, our family, our friends, and our nation. We pray for things like this, but that is not the focus of these prayers that we see that Paul prays. It is not always the focus of the prayers that we read in the Psalms. There is something more significant about which we should pray and be thankful for. And so... Uh, we need to look at this and think our way through the emphasis in Scripture on being grateful. As I commented earlier, we live in a world today that's just become strident. I have quit watching many news shows simply because I'm tired of listening to people yell at each other. And I haven't, I've had such glorious, peaceful mornings for the last, I think it's been four or five years now. I get up in the morning, I have to go in and turn the TV on. I have DVR, so it's recording on a local channel. I go in and make my breakfast and get my coffee, and I come in and I sit down and I rewind it to the weather forecast. I watch the weather forecast and I turn it off. And after I eat, I open my Bible and read through the Bible, and it's just a glorious way to start the day every day and not to get caught up in all the stuff that is going on around us that just distracts us. And it gives you time to think about what we have that is of real significance and that we are given by the grace of God. And that is where we're focusing this morning. In these two verses, what we covered last time and this time, Paul writes to the Ephesians, Therefore... I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And as we look at this, we see Paul, as we saw last week, says, therefore, which means he's reaching a conclusion, he's coming to uh, sort of a summary that on the basis of what I have said, uh, I am uh, going to express this prayer. He says, therefore, also. So the first thing that we see here that prompts this prayer of Paul's in verses 15 to 23 is what he has just said as he is focused on what we have been given, what we have been blessed with from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the first thing. And he expresses that. And then the second thing that he uh, gives as a reason for his prayer is what he has heard. The report that has been given to him about the spiritual condition of the church in Ephesus. And I think that is something that we don't spend a lot of time on. I'm not going to have anybody raise hands, but how many times do you just thankful for the people who sit around you who are constantly here at church on Sunday and at Bible class and their growth in the Lord. Uh, do we think about those people? Sometimes you don't even know those people. If we're to pray for one another, how can you pray for people you don't know? 
oh, just pray for all those people who are at West Houston Bible Church. But we should know, at least know the people who sit around us, be aware of who they are, and that we should be able to pray for them. That's what Paul is doing. He's praying. He is grateful for how God is working in their lives. That's why he can say, I am, <clears throat> I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. That's not just a general statement. He's heard specifics about what is taking place in the church at Ephesus, in the lives of the individuals and how they are growing spiritually and how they are learning to trust the Lord and situations that they have faced in an extremely pagan environment. Remember, there was a lot of hostility when Paul was there from the silversmiths who, in fact, caused a riot against Paul uh, because the gospel was having such an impact it was beginning to hurt their business. They made the little figurines of of the uh, idol for uh, Artemis of the Ephesians, and so they made a lot of money from selling those, and now they were losing business and losing money because the people were responding to the gospel of Christ. And so he hears about their faith and how that grows in the midst of a dark pagan environment, and he also uh, talks about their uh, love for all the saints that they care about. This isn't just some sort of generic love. It's not just a love that that is at a distance, but it is a love that where they are praying for one another, they are helping one another when they can, when there are situations that arise where they need help and assistance, and so they are involved in each other's lives. And we saw that at the conclusion last week of the importance of love in our life, our love for God grows as we learn about him, and as we learn more about him, that also uh, increases our love, our understanding of what love is, and our love for one another. This is a common theme in uh, Paul's openings in Colossians 1.4, which is a parallel statement. He talks about uh, uh, with them, he says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love, for the saints. So this is a priority, and it's not only a priority, it's a priority that prompts him to pray more for that congregation. So that is something uh, that should be very much a part of our prayers and our prayer life as we come to know each other and be involved in each other's lives to one degree or another as we go through life. So at the opening here, of this prayer, he talks about the fact that he heard of their faith and of their love. And if we look further down, we hear that we also read him speaking about uh, the hope of his calling in verse 18. So here we have the mention of three words that are central to everyone's spiritual life. Some people call these the three foundational virtues for the Christian life, faith, hope, and love. And in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, we have a summary statement by the Apostle Paul after he has talked about the spiritual gifts in chapter 12, and then in chapter 13 he talks about 
uh, and describes the characteristics of love. It's very difficult to define love. Don't look in your dictionary. That just tells you how love is understood among the masses, but it doesn't define it in terms of how God understands love. A dictionary simply reflects usage, and it doesn't reflect the usage of the Bible or the usage of Christians. The love that we have for God, the love that we have for one another is not an emotion. That's what you'll read in any dictionary. But this is not an an emotional thing. Emotions are swayed by all kinds of factors that some of which are beyond our control. We wake up in in the morning and sometimes we have energy, sometimes we don't have energy, sometimes uh, we feel up and we bounce out of bed and other mornings we drag ourselves into the coffee pot and use all of our energy to turn it on and make coffee so we can become alert. Uh, that All of that is it just changes every single day. And the love of God and the love that we have been given as a fruit of the Spirit is a stable love. It is a love that doesn't uh, vacillate with circumstances, and it's the only kind of love that is developed by um, by the Holy Spirit in our lives. So Paul talks about this, and then in contrast, he breaks into that with this discussion about the impermanence of certain spiritual gifts, and in uh, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 13, 8, which we'll reference again later on, he says, Love never fails, but knowledge will be abolished, tongues will cease, which indicates a complete ending. And we'll look at that word when we come back to it a little later in this passage. And then uh, wisdom will be abolished. And then he comes to the conclusion of this discussion about the temporary gifts, and he says, but now, now meaning in this apostolic age, because of the word he uses for now, in contrast to a, another word for now he uses in the previous verse that indicates a more immediate now. This is a broader now in terms of the church age. But now abide faith, hope, love, these three. The greatest of these is love. But this isn't the only place where we find these three connected. They're connected in our passage in Ephesians 1. They're connected in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And there were also, uh, just a reminder that when we talk about faith, faith is trusting in something that is not tangible. It's not based on empiricism. It's not based on our rationalism. And Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith operates in this age. It operates as we are in the church age. But when we either A, die, or B, get raptured, we will be face-to-face with the Lord where we see him. That is not faith. That is sight. And Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is the evidence of things not seen. So faith is not operative when we get face-to-face with the Lord. Second, hope is not operative when we're face-to-face with the Lord. In Romans 8.24, Paul says, For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. Okay, so when we're face-to-face with the Lord, we realize that confident expectation that hope describes. So that means when we're face-to-face with the Lord, faith is not operative anymore because we see that reality. 
Hope is not operative anymore because we're living in the realization of that expectation. But love is still operative because God is love. Love goes on for all eternity. That's why Paul concludes by saying the greatest of these is love. But as I was saying in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, we see a reference to these three virtues again. Paul has praised them, and he talks about remembering what God is doing in their life. And he says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Now, he uses these three phrases that they're connected with the genitive there, work of faith. It's Sometimes we say, well, wait a minute, how can faith be a work? I thought faith was not a work. I thought faith was non-meritorious. Well, that's why you have to understand the grammar at times. This is a genitive of source. The work comes from the source of faith. We serve the Lord because we believe him and we are walking in faith. Okay? So faith, it's not saying faith is a work. It is saying that when we are walking by faith, then the result of that is that we serve the Lord. And so that is the first aspect. Then he uses a synonym for work in the second phrase there, labor of love. It's the labor that love produces. When we love someone, we will labor for them. If you're a mother or a father and you have a child then you have a great idea of what that means. You love that child, and you put forth great efforts to do things for that child or for your children. Labor that is produced by love. And third, hope, that confident expectation produces for us patience. Now, this I, I don't care for this translation of this Greek word. The Greek word is hupomene, and it means really persistence or endurance in times of difficulty. We can endure things because we see a light at the end of the tunnel. The light at the end of the tunnel is our being face-to-face with the Lord, realizing that hope that we have, that confident expectation. That, that's what hope means. It's not this wishy-washy uh, optimism, that wishful optimism that, well... I want to go out and do some things this afternoon. I hope it doesn't rain. 30% chance of rain, so maybe it will, maybe it won't, but we don't know. That's not how the Bible uses the word hope. Hope is a confident expectation. It is a future certainty, a reality. So uh, when we're living today in light of eternity, we can face whatever comes our way, whatever the circumstances may be, whatever positive, wonderful things we experience in life or whatever difficult things we face in life, because we know that God is working all things together for good, because we know that there is a meaning and a purpose for whatever adversity, whatever suffering there might be, and so we can endure, we can persist in obedience to God, hupomene, because of that hope. That hope produces endurance that hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the sight of God and Father. And then at the end of 1 Thessalonians, Paul comes back and mentions these three again. He says, but let us who are of the day 
be sober. Now, that doesn't mean to avoid drinking alcoholic beverages and getting drunk. The word sober has to do with clear thinking, thinking that is not uh, going to be uh, muddied up with wrong ideas, false beliefs, being distracted by the cares of the world. It is objective thinking that is based on the reality of God's word. So to be able to think soberly, you have to know the word of God and think in terms of God's plans and purposes. So he says, we are of the day. That is, the day is when the sun's out and there's light. So this is used as a figure of speech for the fact that we have been enlightened. That's what the phrase Paul's going to use when we get down into verse uh, 18. He'll talk about the eyes of your understanding having been enlightened. It's a perfect tense. So here he's using that imagery of a day because we are of the day. We have been enlightened uh, at regeneration. We've received the Holy Spirit. We have been enlightened to the truth. And so he says, we who are of the day, we have been enlightened. We are believers. We're to do something. We're to put on the breastplate of faith and love. This is not talking about positional here, being in the light. We are sons of the light, and that's what Paul will say in Ephesians chapter one, uh, chapter 5. We are of the light. We are sons of the light. And we, then he says, walk in the light. Well, that's what he's talking about here. You have a position, that is, who you are as a member of God's family, and then you have your behavior, which is how you're supposed to live as a member of God's family. And so as a member of God's family, to realize the benefits and blessing of being of the day, we have to put on the breastplate of faith and love. Now, how do you do that? You do that, first of all, you have to spend some time in the Word. Because faith is not something that just is, well, I just believe it. We live in a world today when there are a lot of people who talk about the importance of faith. But it's just faith in faith. It's faith in something rather than something specific. It is, you know, in the New Age, it was very common to talk about this, and you have uh, various false teachers in the church who will talk about the importance of faith, but they never define it. In Scripture, faith always has Scripture as its object. Now, you may say, well, wait a minute, my object of my faith is in God or in the Son or in the Spirit. Yes, but how do you know about the Father, Son, or Spirit? You don't know them any other way except through the Word. So it is the Word that is the focal point of our faith, and because of the Word, we know that we have faith in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It is Everything is always mediated for us through the Word of God. So we put on the breastplate of faith, which is... The faith rest drill, trusting in the promises and the provision of God, which means we need to be memorizing scripture. We need to, as David says in the Psalms, we need to hide God's word in our heart. We need to memorize scripture so that we, God the Holy Spirit can bring those scriptures to mind as we go through our lives, living our lives on a day-to-day basis. That is how we put on the breastplate of faith. Now, breastplate is a piece of armor that protects all of the important organs in the torso. And that's what faith does. It is something God provides to protect us 
when we are going through times of adversity, times of temptation, times of testing. And so we put on the breastplate of faith, and it's also the breastplate of love. Love is a problem-solving spiritual skill. As we deal with people, it is often easy to get distracted and to get irritated, angry, bitter, resentful, uh, vindictive towards those who uh, have done something to us or said things negatively about us, those who have mistreated us. And so the way to deal with that is remember that we are to love them, <clears throat> love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to love them as Christ loved, loved them. Uh, God the Father sent his son to die on the cross. Uh, the love of God was demonstrated by sending his son to die on the cross for those who had enmity with him, not for those who liked him, but for those who were hostile to him. That is a pattern for love. So as we grow in Scripture, we grow in our knowledge of God, and that then converts to a love for God because we understand who he is and what he has done for us. And incidentally, that's got to be related to gratitude. When I talk about the spiritual skills, one of the basic spiritual skills is grace orientation. Grace orientation means that our thinking is going to be aligned to understanding that God's grace permeates everything in our life. Grace is something that is not earned or deserved. Grace is God's freely given to us uh, everything that we need for the, for the spiritual life. When we come to understand grace from the Latin word, the English word is from the Latin word gratia, and that is also the root for the word gratitude. As we come to understand God's grace, we develop gratitude for God. And as we develop gratitude for God, that expands our love for him. All of those things go together. Go together. Grace and gratitude perform, form a foundation uh, for the love for God. So that is how we put on this breastplate of faith and love. And then the helmet, which protects the head, the brain, the source of where our soul is located, as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Hope is that confident expectation. Salvation there is not phase one, salvation of justification. It is not uh, phase two, which is our uh, spiritual growth, where we are working out our salvation and fear and trembling, but it is our future face-to-face salvation when we realize all of our salvation and we're face-to-face with the Lord. So again, that ties back to what Paul said in one three about the endurance that hope produces. And so that hope produces that which protects our soul as we live in light of eternity and our future deliverance and salvation. So that's another passage that talks about faith, hope, and love. And then we have another passage in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, "...who through him, that is Christ, believe in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are to be in God." He is the object of our faith and our hope. We may have faith in Christ for salvation, but ultimately, ultimately this is uh, we're looking at faith 
and hope in God. Here I think God is not distinguishing the Father from the Son or the Holy Spirit, but is talking about the, the whole Godhead as the object of our faith and our hope. And then in verse 22, Peter writes, Since you have purified your souls by obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love for the brethren. Love one another constantly with a pure heart. So he says here, since we have obeyed the truth, then that is going to result in our growth in love for one another. And as we do that, he recognizes among those he's writing that they have a love for one another. And then he says, on top of that, continue to increase. Love one another constantly. This is to be a constant characteristic of our life with a pure heart, not that we are living according to sin nature, but we're loving from a position of walking by the Spirit. Why? Verse 23, because we, ha- <clears throat> because you have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. So in our passage, he, uh, Paul builds this uh, prayer, the reason for his prayer, and the prayer itself around these three foundational virtues in the Christian life. So he says to them in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now, what does he mean when he says, I don't cease? Well, the Greek word here is the word pao, and it means to to cease something, to stop something, something that you're doing and you're going to bring it to an end. But it's an interesting word in the way it's used, and we need to flesh it out just a little bit. And I'm going to look at what it means positively. Here he uses it negatively, I do not cease. But first we have to understand what it means positively. In these examples, uh, what we're going to see is that cease indicates completely stopping something that is in progress. And, and it's not going to start up in a couple of hours or be repeated again soon. It's something that's going to come to a complete, complete halt. That's the significance in 1 Corinthians 13.8 when he says tongues will cease. It's going to stop. It's not going to start up again. It's not going to come back. It's over with. So we see... See it used in Luke 8:24. The disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee. This huge storm comes up, and our Lord is just taking a nap. He's asleep. He's very comfortable, and he is. Uh, he knows what the situation is. That this is for the glory of God and to demonstrate that He is uh, in control of creation. And so they come running to Him in panic. Lord, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he arose and he rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased. Storm's over. Sun's out. It ends. Doesn't come back. That's the idea of cessation. It just ends it. Acts 21.32, situation with the Apostle Paul where he is uh, at the center of a riot in the temple. The unsaved Jews are... I have identified who he is, and so they want to uh, grab him and arrest him. 
And so the Roman centurion took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw, when they, that is the Jews, saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. They didn't start it up after they left. They didn't start it up later on. It's a complete ending of an activity, complete cessation of an activity. So that's the meaning of the word pao. Now, when we look at it, when it's used with the negative, not ceasing, we have a couple of other examples from Acts. In Acts 5.42, talking about the apostles continuing to teach in the, in the temple, even when the Sanhedrin has ordered them to, to stop and to not uh, preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And in verse 42, we read, And daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah. Now, does that mean that's all they did? Does that mean they did it every minute of every hour of every day? No. It meant that this was something that was continuous. It continuously characterized what they were doing but it was not something that they did every moment of every day. In Acts 20.31, Paul says, Therefore watch and remember that for three years, talking about the Ephesians, talking to the Ephesian elders, Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So here, did not cease is modified by night and day. That's a merism. That's a figure of speech. He's not saying he did it every night. He's not saying he did it every day. Night and day must be taken together as a figure of speech, which indicates the whole. For example, in Genesis chapter 1, it's morning and it's evening, day 1. It's talking about the two opposites. God creates the heavens and the earth. He created the whole universe. So day and night here indicates that this was something that he did daily and that he did it uh, continuously, but he's not doing it every moment of every day. He's getting a good night's sleep, but he is involved in the ministry of the Word every single day. Now, we change to a slightly different word in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Now, at the end of 1 Thessalonians, Paul gives these, these very quick staccato uh, exhortations. And in 5.16 to 5.18, he talks about prayer. And I think rejoicing always is focusing on an aspect of prayer that we are doing something actively. We have joy, and that is related to our, uh, our, our walk with the Lord. So in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, we read, Rejoice always, or always rejoice, and the verb there, Cairo, is from the noun for joy, and it means to, uh, and it's a command, it's a uh, <clears throat> present active imperative, and it means to do this, that joy is not, uh, uh, is not an emotion, it is something that is a mental attitude that you can respond to and engage volitionally. You have to make a decision, I'm going to be joyful whether I want to or not. We're not going to focus on the mutating circumstances. We're going to focus on the Lord and the fact that Jesus had 
unchanging joy, even as he's in the Garden of Eden, I mean, excuse me, Garden of Gethsemane, and he's focusing on on what is about to occur, and he is overwhelmed with sorrow and grief, as Matthew tells us, but at the same time, he has perfect joy. And I, we taught on this the other night, that this is seems odd to a lot of people, that we can have great joy at the same time we're grieving and that we're having uh, that we have sorrow. That's what Paul means when he says that we grieve at the time of a death of a loved one, but not like those who have no hope, because we have a confident expectation of resurrection and being with the Lord eternally. So we are to rejoice always, and then in verse 17, pray without ceasing. And the word translated there, without ceasing, is not the word pao. It's a completely different word. It's a synonym, and it means unceasingly or constantly, and it has this idea more of just sort of having a hacking cough. Now, some of you noticed that for the last two weeks, I've had this hacking cough. It's gotten a little better. Some days I go all day and I never cough, and then I lie down at night, and within 10 minutes, all of a sudden, I'm coughing and I can't sleep. And then after a little while, it goes away. And it's just been continuous for two weeks. But it's not every moment of every day. I may not even cough for eight or nine hours, and then all of a sudden, I have this little uh, bout of coughing. That's the idea in a dialeptos. It's just something continuous. It's something that is part of your life on a regular basis, that we are to pray without ceasing. We're to, sometimes we're going to pray more frequently and more often. Sometimes you don't have time because you're focused on responsibilities at your employment, whatever that may be, or something else that you're doing. But when the time permits, then you're praying, whether it's a short bullet prayer or whether it's a more lengthy prayer. And so this is what should characterize our lives is unceasing prayer. And then in verse 18, he says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. And so this is interesting. We'll look at a similar phrase in Ephesians in a minute, where we're to be thankful for all things, not only in all things or in whatever circumstance we may find ourselves, but we're to be thankful for everything. When things are good, when things are bad, there's a reason that God brings testing into our life, and that is to give us opportunities to trust him and to grow as as believers. So we are to be thankful. We're to face life with an attitude of joy and an attitude of gratefulness to God for all that he has given them. And I find that if I begin my day focusing on just being thankful that I woke up that morning, thankful my name's not in the obituaries yet, thankful that my wife wakes up in the morning, thankful that uh, I have opportunity to serve the Lord another day and to study his word and to be a testimony for him. Focus on the fact that we have opportunities today that we can be thankful for that are going to give me an opportunity to claim promises and to grow spiritually and to put my focus on that which has eternal value and not on just the temporal things that bother us day in and day out. 
So we need to develop that. It will change our mentality throughout every day that we start focusing on just being grateful for the things that God has given us and make a list, write it down. Uh, you'll be amazed how many things that we just take for granted sometimes from God. And when we read the scripture, we see how many of these become objects of gratitude for us. So Paul says he does not cease to give thanks for you. And this is the Greek verb, uh, evkaristeo. And it's a present active participle, so he says, I don't cease giving thanks. And what he means by that is thanking God for you. That is the Ephesian believers, the, the Ephesian uh, church. And so as he gets into uh, developing this, he then says in the next phrase, he says, uh, making mention of you in my prayers. Now, this is an interesting idiom because when you look at it in the Greek, it uses the verb poeo, which means to do or to work or to make something. It has a range of meaning related to production. And so it says, it is saying that it's a participle, so it's I make or I do. And then the next word is a noun, mnea, which means remembrance. But together, it's an idiom. And it's an idiom that that means that I am remembering something. I'm not making memories. Literally, that would be something, uh, uh, might be some way somebody might want to translate that, but that's the, not the idea. It is the idea of uh, of remembering and focusing on things about them. So he's saying and mentioning them as he remembers what they have done. So he's remembering and uh, talking to God about them. I make mention of you in my prayers. It's interesting how the Apostle Paul does this over and over again, that when, when he is writing letters to these different congregations that he has uh, been instrumental in establishing, he writes about how frequently he prays for them. We could spend a tremendous amount of time in prayer, we think, as we look at all the different prayer requests that come through. I find it helpful to divide things up. This is what I'm going to pray for on Mondays. This is what I'm going to pray for on Tuesday. This is what I'm going to pray for on Wednesday. what I'm going to pray for on Thursday. But even if I only pray for some of you every Monday, I continually pray for you. Okay? So that is a, a, an approach to this. And we look back through the epistles and we see this pattern of gratitude in Paul's prayers. He says, first to the Romans, in Romans 1, 8 and 9, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Why? Just because you're nice and just because you're there? No, no. That your faith is spoken of throughout the world. You have a reputation. People know about you. People know about West Houston Bible Church. People know that those who are at West Houston Bible Church are learning the word. There is a reputation. We know that there's a similar reputation for other churches that, that we know about. We're not exclusive to that. But Paul is saying this, and he thanks God. Notice, he thanks God. There it's God the Father through Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ is our intercessor. We don't pray to Jesus Christ. He's not saying, oh, I thank Jesus for you. He thanks God the Father. God the Father is the architect and the overseer of his plan. And the role of the Son is to intercede for us, and the role of the Spirit is to intercede for us. And this is one reason we say that we are to pray to God the Father. You can't find an example of Paul praying to Jesus or to the Holy Spirit. He prays to the Father through the Son. The Son is the one who enables us, makes it possible by our salvation, to pray to God. And so he prays to God. He thanks God through Jesus Christ that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. And then in verse 9 he says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his salvation, that without ceasing, and here he doesn't use power, he uses adioleptos, without ceasing. So he's practicing what he is in giving instructions about in First Thessalonians 5, that without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. So it's that same idea. He constantly is praying, not every moment of every day, but it. when you look back over the year, day in, day out, he prays for different groups, different people, and he brings them uh, to memory. Then at the end of Romans we find that he is thankful for Priscilla and Aquila because they risk their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. So he that's another thing. He's thankful for what other believers have done in helping him and providing for him, and in this case, protecting him. We look at 1 Corinthians. Paul says at verse 4, now the Corinthians, remember, were a pretty messed up group. They were they had more fun living on the basis of their sin nature than walking by the Spirit. They were divided. They fought with each other. They were involved in all sorts of sins and arrogance. And yet Paul says, I thank my God always, literally says, I give thanks to my God. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Jesus Christ or by Christ Jesus. Now notice, he didn't say, I'm thankful for your reputation of faith. He's not thankful for their application because there's not much, but he's thankful for the grace of God that was given to them and that they were enriched in everything by him. And then I think it's a little tongue-in-cheek here in utterance, because they were abusing uh, what they thought was the gift of tongues, and all knowledge. So they were abusing knowledge as well. But here he is, so there's a little sarcasm uh, going on here, but he tells them that God has enriched them in all of these areas but he's thankful for what the grace of God has given to them. Ephesians 5.20, Paul will return to this theme of thanksgiving, and he says we're giving thanks always for all things to God the Father. Notice again, he's addressing his prayer to God the Father in the name or on the basis of who Jesus Christ is. We always take this to mean that we're going to close out our prayer in the name of Jesus. 
Uh, Paul means something much more than that. He means that we recognize that the basis for which we come into the presence of God is the work of Christ on the cross and that we have trusted him as our Savior, that that is what gives us access to the throne of grace. So we give thanks here not in all things, as he said in First Thessalonians, but for all things, the good things, the bad things, the hard things, the easy things, the fun things. Philippians 1, 3 through 5, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always. Notice these words, every and always. It's continuous, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, he's an apostle. How can God expect that of me? He's worked, you know, this is his job. Well, remember, Paul was a tent maker. He worked from sunup to sundown uh, in some places. But even while he's working, he can take time uh, in his mind to pray. So he's always in, in every prayer making requests to you all with joy for your fellowship. So he's thankful for their application of the word, their participation and partnership in his ministry. And this letter that he wrote uh, in, in Philippians is a partially a thank you note for the way they have sent a contribution to him while he is in prison in Rome. And remember, uh, in at the end of, I believe it's 1 Corinthians, might be 2 Corinthians, he says that the Macedonians, that's the Philippians, the Macedonians uh, gave from their poverty, not from their wealth. They, they did not have much, but they still gave to support the apostle Paul. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 Paul says, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We've already talked about this, but again, it's emphasizing what he's praying for. And what he's grateful for is the way the word of God is working its way out in your life. He does the same thing in Second Thessalonians uh, one, two, and following in verse three says, we are bound. It's an interesting word in the Greek. It means I'm obligated. That applies to every one of us. We have an obligation. Some people think that obligation means that means legalism. But if you have a car, you have an obligation to take care of that car. It's an inherent responsibility because you're an owner. If you are renting someplace or owning someplace, you have an obligation to take care of it. So we are obligated to thank God always for you. That is part of our responsibility as believers to thank God for other believers and uh, to pray for them. And here he says, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. So he continues to pray because of their, the way they're growing in faith and their love for one another. And then in verse 13, it starts off almost the same way, but then it changes. He says, we are bound, that is, we're obligated to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So going back to those foundational uh, doctrines which we have studied. So we've seen in both First Thessalonians 5.18 and 5.20, we're to pray uh, give thanks for all things and in all things. Gratitude should encompass our lives. If we're self-centered, you're not going to be grateful because when you're grateful, you're recognizing that what you have 
comes from comes from God. But when we're self-absorbed and living on our sin nature, it's all about me. Now, when we pray, just a reminder, I use this acronym of CATS to talk about the elements of prayer. Now, not every prayer has all these elements, and not. <clears throat> and sometimes we just take one element, and that's the whole prayer. Uh, the C is for confession. The A is for adoration or praise. The T is for thanksgiving. And the S is for supplication. Now, supplication involves two things. We are interceding or praying for others, and we are also petitioning God for ourselves. So sometimes we just focus on one or the other or two or three, but those are the basic elements of prayer. So we see from Paul here in verse 16 that we should be like Paul in this to pray without ceasing, to continuously give thanks, and to focus on all that God has given us with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for all that you've provided for us. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful that we have your word. We're thankful that we have decent translations and that we have good teaching to help us understand your word and that you have not just given us your word so that we can be stimulated uh, intellectually, but so that it will transform our lives, that we'll recognize the error, the deceit, the lies that dominate in the world around us, and the lies that also are generated by our own sin nature, the deception that comes from our own arrogance. And Father, we pray that you would expose these things to us in the light of your word, that we might uh, be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that in terms of renewing our mind, that's not just intellectual content, but it also involves uh, being grateful. It involves being joyful, rejoicing in always, no matter what our circumstances may be, and that recognizing this isn't some sort of giddy excitement. It is just a stable attitude of, of <clears throat> happiness, of, of joy, of contentment, because we know we're in your plan, and there's a purpose for whatever is going on in our life, whether we understand it or not. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here, anyone listening uh, to this message online, that if there's anyone who is unsure or uncertain of their eternal life, of what would happen if they were to die today, that they would come to grips with what the Scripture says, that it's not by works of righteousness, which we've done. It doesn't depend on anything that we've done. It, it's not going to be canceled by some sin, some horrible thing that's happened in the past. It, it's not on the basis of anything that we do. It's on the basis of what Jesus Christ did for us. Jesus went to the cross. He paid for our sins, and that we either accept that or reject it. And when we accept it, we believe on him, we trust in him and him alone, and that is what secures us an eternal salvation. And instantly we are given new life. We are born again. We are in him, and we have a new destiny. We are part of a new royal family, your royal family, and we have a, a, a mission given to us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and to serve you. Father, we pray you challenge us with all these things. In Christ's name, amen.